a tale of two narratives, isn't it? On one hand, we have ongoing supply concerns. We're not going to have enough metal, peak everything. There's not going to be enough energy. There's not going to be enough oil. How on earth are we going to get all the metals we need for this energy transition? But then on the other hand, it's a tale of China is slower to open up than we expected. The global economy may be heading into a growth scare in the second half, recession concerns and whatnot. And so these two narratives seem to be battling it out. And I would say the opportunity really from the investment point of view, and of course not financial advice, but what I think to myself as I look at this is this could provide quite an opportunity, couldn't it? I mean, all I hear again, and hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome back. And all I hear over here for a couple of years now, at least, maybe longer, is we're going to hit some pretty big kind of supply deficits here. Copper, who was it last week was saying this is like the greatest fundamental story I've ever seen, <laughs> you know, like on copper. So I just see an opportunity from my, again, for all we know, we have a huge growth scare and this stuff goes down 75%. But that's kind of what I'm hoping for, I guess, from a purely self-interested point of view from the, you know, putting on my investor cap here, you know, wouldn't it be great to see copper at $1.50 or $2.50 or $3, wouldn't that be grand? You know, wouldn't it be great to see gold back down at 1200 bucks? Seems like wishful thinking, at least in terms of gold. I'll say this as well. Here's another interesting tale of two narratives. Look at how well gold is doing versus the industrial metals. And I think of Gareth Soloway, that famous technical trader, he's been on the show a few times. We should see if he wants to come back. I mean, I hesitate a little bit just because we can't show the charts here on an audio podcast. So it's not, and his kind of magic really is in the charts. But, you know, it reminds me of Gareth Soloway, who's sort of like, likes silver, but doesn't love it, but does love gold. And for the very reasons that we're describing, the fear trade makes gold attractive, whereas the fear trade doesn't necessarily work out for silver because of its industrial uses. It's almost like this disparity between gold and silver, as we're going to see this week, is a microcosm of this greater, you know, tension of these two narratives that are in conflict. I mean, the, the price of the metals say their own story. And of course, Dr. Copper, you know, legendary Dr. Copper is at $3.67. So it is moving down. It is down 2%. Whereas again, you see gold down 0.45% and silver down 0.56%. Now that is just this morning's opening, but it kind of illustrates this point, doesn't it? So that is super interesting. And again, from putting on my investment cap, it kind of makes me excited, to be perfectly blunt. Let's see what happens. And again, not investment advice and who knows. Another interesting, just on the investment front, another interesting dynamic at work. Let's look at the oil price because then there's the mining stocks, right? And you look at the oil price. I mean, oil is up at $71.31, but just, I mean, what did it peak out at last year? Was it 130, 140? So oil is down pretty dramatically. Like imagine this, that you have high gold prices, but all the industrial metals are down. Like what could happen to the gold stocks? But it kind of looks like a 
Goldilocks scenario, doesn't it? An ideal scenario. What if you have low input costs while achieving high prices for your product as a gold miner? So the gold miners, and adding to that whole narrative, gold stocks have been pretty terrible for a long time, which also makes them very interesting, right? I mean, you don't want to be in a market that's up 50% or 100%. I mean, they have done well. Like if I very quickly here bring up Google Finance on GDX, I mean, to be fair, let's just take a look here. Van Eck Gold Miners ETF. So it's at $33.82. So to be fair, it was down at $27 in March. So that is up 20% since the beginning of March. And further, last September, it was at $22. So you're up basically 50% since September. So actually not a bad showing at all. However, once you zoom out even more, it's not as pretty of a picture. Before then, if you were a long-term holder, April of 2022 is at $39.67. Let's call it $40. You'd be down, you know, 18%. If you held on since August of 2020, it was at $42. So you would also be down 30%. So it's been a tough trade. It's been a very tough trade for the long-term holders. But I think, unfortunately, I'd say for this industry, it's kind of part of the reason we have all these supply deficits. Part of the problem is the best way oftentimes to invest in, in commodities and metals is to play them cyclically, is to go in and out of them, is sort of like to do what Rick Rule does, is to speculate. And that's part of the problem. I'd say that's part of the reason we have these shortages and part of the reason a lot of miners like investment from China because it's slow and steady and they're not pulling out every six months for a profit. So all very interesting and we can only play with the market we have, not with the market we want, as they say. So all to say that could be a very interesting dynamic. Now, moving along this whole narrative, we have this big M&A from Newmont taking over Newcrest. And we also have another one, a smaller one, but a similar dynamic with Silvercorp taking over Celsius Resources, which is Australian. In both cases, Newcrest has copper and Celsius Resources also has copper. And both companies seem to want copper. So it's almost like they are taking advantage of this premium that gold has, this relative strength that gold is showing against copper, perhaps, and are taking their opportunity to buy assets when they are relatively cheap, one could argue. So we're going to take a closer look at those stories here. Another very interesting story about Alcoa and the Emirates, and they just signed a massive eight-year Illumina supply deal. Huge deal, from what I can tell here, and more. So lots to look forward to. Coming up also, we have Dr. Sad. Dara of Mangrove Lithium, and continuing with this focus on critical minerals, last week was graphite. John DeMaio spoke eloquently on the whole situation with processing and graphite. Well, here is your lithium equivalent. Dr. Sad Dara is the CEO and co-founder of Mangrove Lithium, which is a very interesting company using a different kind of processing, electrochemical processing of lithium. And I mean, one of the big takeaways here is by using this kind of process, you don't need to put chemicals in like traditional processing of lithium. 
And so you actually end up with a purer lithium in a much easier way because you don't need to get rid of the chemicals you put into the lithium in order to extract. It's also more environmentally friendly. There are less emissions because you're basically cutting out certain parts of the supply chain. So this is out of British Columbia, I believe. This is a Canadian company. There's investment from Bill Gates' venture and also from the government of Canada's entrepreneurial venture and also BMWI, which I think is a BMW investment organization. So a very interesting guess, very knowledgeable, a PhD. I mean, really a, a beautiful Canadian story actually, and a beautiful story of science helping out with this whole energy transition. Also coming up, finally, we have the Global Mining Symposium that is at events.northernminer.com, and it is taking place in Toronto, and it features Alexander John Davidson from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, Douglas Balfour Silver from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and Jim Cooney from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Heavy hitters here from the Canadian mining industry, as well as Rob McEwen, George Hemingway and Peter Grosskopf from Sprott Capital, as well as many more featured speakers here from several companies. So just go to events.northernminer.com, click on register your interest, and you're going to see a whole bunch of incredible, interesting speakers. And you have the chance to participate when you register your interest Thursday, May 25th at the TMX Market Center at 120 Adelaide Street West in Toronto, Ontario. So don't miss that. If you are in the mining scene in Toronto or otherwise. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Newcrest Mining accepts $19.2 billion Newmont takeover deal. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Newcrest Mining has agreed to a takeover deal with Newmont Corporation worth about $19.2 billion to create the world's biggest gold producer. Newcrest shareholders will get 0.4 shares in Newmont for every Newcrest share they own, giving them 31% ownership of the combined group. The Melbourne-based company said on Monday, confirming a Bloomberg News report on Sunday, the deal gives Newcrest an implied enterprise value of $19.2 billion, which includes net debt. Newcrest had earlier agreed to extend Newmont's due diligence rights to May 18th after an earlier deadline lapsed, it said Thursday. And we have a quote from Newcrest chairman Peter Tomset, who said in a statement, Quote, this transaction will combine two of the world's leading gold producers, bringing forward significant value to Newcrest shareholders through the recognition of our outstanding growth pipeline. The enlarged Newmont will have gold assets in North and South America, Africa, Australia, and Papua New Guinea. It will also extend its exposure to copper, a key metal in the clean energy transition. A deal would likely mark the apogee of a furious five-year consolidation among the world's largest gold miners that began with Barrick Gold's $18 billion pursuit of Rand Gold resources and includes a $5.2 billion takeover of Umana Gold that was completed in March. Newmont's proposal comes just weeks after the spot trading price of bullion approached an all-time record amid a global stagflation watch. Scrolling down a bit, it's not just Newcrest's five gold mines across three continents that are attracting Newmont, as the Australian company generates around a quarter of its revenue from copper. Newmont, in turn, is facing a decade-long gold rut and said it wants more of the energy transition metal in its portfolio. 
very interesting. So it goes through Silver Corp to buy Copper Gold Focus Junior Celsius Resources. So more M&A. So this is by Jackson Chen on the Northern Miner. Silver Corp Metals is moving towards being a diversified precious base metals producer. With the signing of a preliminary agreement to acquire Australia's Celsius resources in a stock plus cash transaction valued at $56 million Australian. Under the proposed deal, Silvercorp would acquire each outstanding share of Celsius at a fixed value of $0.03. Cents. Silvercorp noted that the offer represents a 76% premium to Celsius's 20-day volume weighted average price at the close of trading on May 11th. The stock ended last week's trading at a price of Australian two cents. Celsius's main asset is the high-grade Malinao Kaigutan Biog MCB Copper Gold Project located in the Philippines. The project was previously explored by Freeport McMoran over a span of seven years before being sold to Celsius in September 2020. And finally, just a quote from Silvercorp CEO Dr. Wei Fang. I think he's been in there for over 10 years. I feel like I remember that name way back when, quote, the addition of the MCB project to our growing project portfolio aligns with our strategic objectives of diversifying and growing our asset base and will position us to benefit from copper's strong fundamentals, a key ingredient in the green energy revolution. He added, we believe this is a rare opportunity to leverage our underground mining expertise and financial strength to unlock value for all shareholders through the development of the MCB project, as well as aggressive exploration programs in the Pacific Rim, Metallogenic Belts, one of the most important porphyry copper gold belts in the world. Very interesting. So both of these deals have copper in them, and both are precious metals producers that were making the first move towards getting more copper. So again, we back up a step and we think about tech and that deal within that context, and you just see... There is a hunt for copper on right now, and the prices are cheap. So now is the time. Continuing on, Alcoa signs eight-year alumina supply deal with Emirates Global Aluminum. This is Reuters via mining.com. U.S. aluminum producer Alcoa Corp. has signed an eight-year agreement to supply another metal producer, Emirates Global Aluminum, EGA, with smelter-grade alumina, both companies said in a statement on Monday. Alumina is the key raw material for making aluminum. Prices for the metal used in transport, construction, and packaging hit their lowest since October 31st last week on concerns about demand from top consumer China. So we're seeing this across the board right now, a fear of deflation and of global recession, which is bringing down metal prices even though supplies are tight. Continuing on, hope that demand for aluminum would rise in the long term along with consumption of other metals needed for the global green energy transition are, however, driving appetite for deals in the mining industry. And we have a quote from EGA CEO Abdul Nasser bin Kalban, who said in a statement, quote, most of our alumina needs into the next decade are now secured by our own production and a longtime supplier in Alcoa. Now, this is interesting. So I assume the Emirates has energy. Because as they say with aluminum, it is congealed electricity. So it kind of makes sense that they would have a smelter out in the Middle East. And look at this. The agreement, which commences in 2024, will allow EGA to procure as much as 15.6 million tons of alumina from Western Australia and will represent a significant portion of Alcoa's annual third-party alumina sales 
the company said. So this is a really big deal. I mean, I don't see a price tag. It's just an eight-year agreement, but we don't really have too many details on here. EGA operates smelters in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, an alumina refinery in Abu Dhabi, and a bauxite mine in Guinea. Its alumina refinery met 47% of EGA's total alumina needs in 2022. So this is also interesting. So they actually have to source out alumina in order to meet their needs. So again, uh, it's back to the theme of this show. There is a divergence in the price narrative and in the fundamental supply-demand narrative, isn't there? Continuing on, just a short story here. Australia approves new coal mine after pledges of climate action. Bloomberg News via mining.com. I thought this was quite interesting. Australia's center-left Labour government has approved its first new coal mine since it came to power a year ago in a boost to the country's lucrative fossil fuel industry. Bowen Coking Coal said Friday that it had received approval to move ahead with its planned Isaac River coal mine, which will sit alongside several other projects in the Bowen Basin in Queensland. The company plans to increase output of coal used in steelmaking to 5 million tons by 2024. And this is what I wanted to get to was the quote, because I think it illustrates the situation right now. And here is, again, a center-left Labour government. Tanya Plibersek, who is the Environment Minister, said this to the Australia Broadcasting Corporation, quote, this is a small project. It's a project that produces metallurgical coal, which is the coal you need for steel making. There's no renewable energy future that doesn't have steel in it. So this is the reality, I think, that policymakers are increasingly starting to understand here. There's no renewable energy future that doesn't have steel in it. And I think you could just pick your commodity there and you could probably put oil right there with it. Continuing on, Ivanhoe Electric sets up JV with Saudi Arabia's Madden. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. And just a couple of lines here. Ivanhoe Electric is forming a 50-50 joint venture with Saudi Arabian miner Madden to explore for metals considered key for the world's energy transition in the Middle Eastern country. As part of the deal, Madden will invest $126 million in Ivanhoe Electric Equity, which grants the Gulf's largest miner a 10% stake in the company, mining magnate Robert Friedland's latest endeavor. And Friedland has a quote, Our joint venture will embark on the largest exploration program ever conducted using our highly powerful and disruptive Typhoon geophysical surveying system. Well, he doesn't waste a word in his quotes, does he? So, very interesting, making a deal with Saudi Arabia now. And continuing on, platinum facing biggest deficit in years as carmakers snap up metal. So, this is Reuters via mining.com. You do hear this on YouTube a little bit of platinum being in a massive supply deficit. Let's see what it says here. Again, this is Reuters via mining.com. Rising demand from automakers, industry, and investors will push the global platinum market into its biggest deficit in years three industry reports predicted on Monday. The reports underline an emerging change in fortunes for platinum and its sister metal palladium, both used chiefly in vehicle exhaust to neutralize harmful engine emissions. For years, rising demand and undersupply of palladium pushed prices higher, while lackluster consumption and more plentiful availability kept platinum prices low. Automakers are now shifting from palladium to platinum to save money, 
Production of platinum-intensive heavy-duty vehicles is rising, and exhaust-free electric vehicles are making inroads into the palladium-focused light vehicle market. Also supporting platinum are consumption by industry and jewelers, while palladium demand depends almost entirely on autos. Palladium prices have fallen sharply in recent months, while platinum prices show signs of recovery. It's true, we've seen this in metal prices, that the relative strength of platinum over palladium is pretty significant. We've seen some big drops in palladium here. And finally, just a headline, zinc prices sink as supply rebound dispels fears of shortfall. This is Reuters via mining.com. And here again, it's China is the reason. Zinc's slump is part of a broader price retreat across the base metals complex as China's post-lockdown bounce back continues to disappoint. But zinc is also weighed down by expectations for a strong rebound in supply this year after a protracted smelter bottleneck in 2022. You can read the whole thing on mining.com. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. To metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond, which is yielding 3.526%. That is 0.06% higher than last week. So continuing to bounce back and forth between really 34 and 3.6%, it really has calmed down here, at least on our weekly measurements. It is pretty chill. Turning to precious metals, Gold is at $2,015.30 per ounce. That is $16 lower than last week. Silver is at $23.89 per ounce. That is $1.63 lower than last week. So looks like a bigger drop in silver, as we were noting here, also on the weekly. Platinum is only down $10 at $1,066.65 per ounce. And palladium is $15 lower at $1,530.74 per ounce. So as we were seeing in the news stories, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that palladium was at $2,500. Now it's at $1,530. So a significant drawback, say, in the last year. And meanwhile, if we take the same, you know, time span with platinum, it was around $970, and now it's at 1066 So you see a relative strength performance by platinum over palladium, just as that story was saying. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.72 per pound. That is $0.20 cents lower than last week. Iron ore is trading at $106.77. That is $3 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.03 per pound. That is $0.02 cents lower than last week. And lead is also $0.02 cents lower at 94 cents per pound. Nickel is $1.06 lower at $10.03 per pound. Tin is also lower at $11.27 per pound, and that is 55 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.84 per pound. Lithium is back up at $29.85 per kilogram. That is $3.52 higher than last week. And uranium is... 30 cents lower at $53.40 per pound, and zinc is also lower at $1.15 per pound. That is 7 cents lower than last week. So overall, industrial metals take a break. Uranium kind of stays steady eddy, 
And I mean, it's back to the big picture here. Recession concerns and this idea that China might be growing at a slower pace than expected in the narrative there, and that is reflecting on prices. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Sad Dara, CEO and co-founder of Mangrove Lithium to the Northern Miner podcast. He graduated as a PhD in chemical engineering in 2017 and co-founded Mangrove. Sounds like they have a very promising technology, which they're actually in the process of planning out industrial factories in the U.S. So it's a fascinating discussion on lithium and what is going on with processing and how well we're doing at rerouting our supply chains in North America. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Northern Miner podcast, Saad Dara, CEO and co-founder of Mangrove Lithium, to the show. Saad, welcome to the program. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to speaking about lithium and what Mangrove is doing there. Well, I'm looking forward to that as well. I mean, you're kind of a homegrown Canadian company and you're dealing with lithium, which is such a topical issue, supply chains, everything, the whole automobile manufacturing industry is being turned on its head here in the last few years and in the coming years. So tell us, what is Mangrove Lithium? What are you guys working on? Thank you. So Mangrove is a Canadian company. We're based out of Vancouver. We focus on processing of lithium raw materials. And what that means is we take materials that come out of mining operations that have been extracted, specifically lithium, and convert them into raw materials that can go into batteries. I compare us to we do for lithium what crude oil refinery does to produce gasoline. Uh, we produce the final product uh, that can be used in batteries. Our differentiation and what makes us somewhat unique is that we look to do this electrochemically. We focus on taking lithium and converting that and using electricity as opposed to using chemicals. And this allows us to improve the, the process, uh, reduce costs, uh, improve environmental standards around lithium production, but as well as improve the quality of the raw products we make. Uh, and there are fundamental reasons for that, which if your listeners are interested, I'd be happy to dive into. But that, in a nutshell, is what, what we do. That is fascinating. And before we look at the big picture on lithium supply chains and everything, just a little bit more on mangrove. So it sounds almost like we grew out of a university project or something. Like I see you have a PhD in chemical engineering here. Can you just speak a little bit about how you came across this process and how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. So the technology itself was developed at uh, the University of British Columbia. It was my PhD. So my PhD is very closely related to this, or it is the, the technology that Mangrove is developing. I was working for Professor David Wilkinson at, at the University of British Columbia. And we we decided, you know, that I was going to do my PhD. And so I, I sat down with, with him and one, a couple of my other co-founders in Mangrove. And I said, OK, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to be able to spin a company out by the end of my graduate studies. So we we put a plan together. And in 2017, you know, we were at a point where the technology was ready to be commercialized. And so we spun out what was called Mangrove Water Technologies. Uh, initially, we were targeting desalination and water treatment in oil and gas. Uh, but over time, we realized that a much better product market fit for our technology was in the lithium sector. 
And so 2018 and 2019, we started focusing on that. COVID happened, but then things really changed after that, where investment was you know, very, very much looking at the mining sector, looking at critical minerals, and we happened to be really well placed for that. So that's kind of our history. And we, after that, we, we closed uh, an investment with Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Um, that's the Bill Gates-led fund, as well as BDC Capital, which is uh, the government of Canada's uh, bank for entrepreneurs. And recently, BMWI Ventures joined us um, as well. So that's been kind of our history, uh, going through the university, spinning out a company, and then raising private capital. Well, you can't ask for more social proof than uh, Bill Gates, uh, the government of Canada, and BMW. Uh, so that sounds pretty impressive. Now, just again, one more question before we kind of get to the big picture on lithium. How revolutionary was this? I mean, was there a lot of research that led you to believe that you could process lithium or, you know, that there's a processing methods that you guys could do? I think you said using electrochemical processing. Was this like, a, you know, a big leap on your part or was this kind of built on the shoulders of giants? How did this come about? Well, all of science and all of technology is built on uh, on the shoulders of giants. Uh, so, you know, we we're always learning. The work that we were doing, as I mentioned, was really targeting desalination. And so when you're talking about desalination, what that means is you're trying to remove a salt from a water. And the water source can be different things. So we we were looking at desalination. What that means is you're specifically looking at sodium chloride. And as we started to spin out the company, we started thinking, okay, well, if we can do this with sodium chloride, what else can we do this with? And, you know, sodium in the periodic table is right next to lithium. And so is potassium. And so when we started looking at that, we saw that there was a, a you know, we could use lithium as a feedstock. Then I started looking at the lithium market more closely. And of course, where lithium comes from, it's it's in the form of a salt that exists in brines often. And so we started speaking to some people and one of the lithium producers, you know, he suggested, hey, we should try and do this with uh, with lithium salts. And so that's how we pivoted to that. So in terms of a technological breakthrough, you know, it's, the technology remained very much the same, very little change to it. But in terms of a business fit, you know, that was that was the, um, I guess, the eureka moment. So revolutionary can mean different things. It can it doesn't have to be only scientific. It can be innovation in business model or innovation in, in business strategy. So, I, I, you know, I think it was revolutionary in that sense, but not necessarily on science level. Exactly. Like in a sense, the eureka moment is, hey, lithium is right beside us on the periodic table. We can do that with this, too. Would that be fair? Yeah, that that's exactly it. And, you know, I think a lot of credit goes uh, to some of the mentors uh, that had been helping us on the business side. You know, they kept harping on, hey, we got to find more business product market fit. And then um, you pursue those things then. I love it. So I guess you've had to learn a lot about lithium as a part of this then. So what is your understanding of the lithium market right now? I mean, it seemed like there was this crazy bull market that happened. A lot of these stocks just took off like a rocket ship. Then it's kind of crashed actually significantly. I mean, it's basically 50% down from when I started tracking it maybe six or seven weeks ago. Can you speak about the lithium market and just like kind of where we are as far as you understand it from your perspective? Absolutely. So I think, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say this is the timeframes are, are quite important. So up until I think 2019, 
the record price for lithium or as a spot price for lithium had not exceeded, I think, something like $28,000 per ton. That was the, the record. And I think that was achieved in 2019. Since then, after we, you know, the world kind of started coming back to normal after COVID, uh, lithium prices shot up again. And then it was a record was broken pretty much every week for, or for almost a year or something like that. To the point that we got up to, I think, $80,000 a ton. And so now you're right that it has come down to $40,000 a ton. But the important thing is that is still higher than the record prices uh, that, that lithium had had before. And at, at those kind of prices, the cost of production, given what the cost of production is uh, and what those prices are, pretty much most lithium processes are economic. So that's why you're seeing a lot of activity within within the sector. You're seeing a lot of companies participating in it. And the, even though the prices have come down, we think that that's temporary. They will go back up. Nobody really thinks that lithium prices will come below $30,000 a ton. At least that's you know kind of what we think. And the reason for that is just fundamentals. And the fundamental is that EV demand has gone through the roof. And demand for lithium because of that has then gone through the roof. And there just isn't enough supply. Uh, it takes seven to 10 years for a lithium mine to come online if we're lucky and if things uh, move fast enough. And so, you know, the bottleneck is lithium supply. There's, there's just not enough. And that that just keeps prices, that will keep prices up. Of course, you know, I think that will, at some point, there will be parity between the two. And I think that will happen in the future, but we're probably looking at the next rest of the decade being above $30,000 a ton, which is which is a very attractive price for lithium production. I mean, before that, projects at $15,000 a ton of lithium hydroxide or carbonate price were, were quite, quite good. Wow. Yeah, because this is what we keep hearing, is how there's not enough lithium. So it's almost quite a surprise to see it drop like that. But I guess it had gone on quite a run there. And to your point, again, it, it seems like there's not enough when we see all the electric vehicles that are going to come online. There does seem to be a supply deficit on the horizon of sorts. So as far as then as the processing side of things, I mean, you guys are, that is basically more your bailiwick. That's more your area of focus. We hear often that China is responsible for a lot of the processing of critical minerals. Like, I mean, if I had to go from memory, I thought China it's something like 60 to 70% of lithium processing is in China. Or is it more than that? Or do you have any ideas on where we are with processing then? I think it's actually higher than 60 or 70%. So if I'm looking at my chart right now, in terms of the downstream market, when you're looking at not just lithium refining and processing, if you're looking at cell components, battery cells, you know, I think in certain places that Chinese market accounts for almost 80%. And so that that is a big part. With specific to lithium refining and processing, China accounts for over 50%, almost, uh, almost at 60%. And the important thing to note here is that the raw materials itself, the feedstock for those refining and processing plants, that's not in China. That's in Argentina and Chile, Bolivia, uh, and Australia. And so how that material ends up and gets processed in China and goes to the battery manufacturers is quite important. And we have to give credit to the Chinese market for having invested 10 years earlier in this sector. And we are now trying to catch up. There are obviously other elements around it, uh, environmental permitting and restrictions, you know, things that, that are more lax there. 
but certainly they they also invested earlier in it. And so now they're ahead of the curve. Okay, so that kind of helps fill out the picture here. So where are you then in this whole, like, I mean, I guess maybe here's another question for you. Where is Canada then? Like, are you guys the only player on the block? Are there other players? And like, how, how does it all kind of look from, say, uh, let's say a North American level? Sure. Canada is really well placed. So Canada is really well placed from the perspective of we have strong regulations around environmental as well as human rights and what kind of labor is used, but also from the point of view of how much reserves there are. So Canada does have quite a strong reserve of lithium in Quebec and in Ontario. So we're very well placed. And we've also seen couple of recycling companies come out. So, you know, lithium, uh, lithium, uh, that's been uh, quite successful as well as uh, Lifecycle. We're not the only company. There's several other companies that are looking to work um, and, you know, produce lithium within Canada, as well as in North America and the United States, uh, you might say it's, it's even bigger. Both the IRA uh, in the United States and then the critical mineral strategy that Jonathan Wilkinson, our Minister for Natural Resources, announced have been targeted at in increasing the production of lithium that comes from Canada as well as the U.S. And on a policy level, there are incentives for locally sourced materials that that go into, into cars. And all of that, I think, is putting us in a really good spot for you know, over the long term in developing this and transitioning to a, to a cleaner, cleaner economy. Uh, certainly, I think in terms of the skill sets that you know our, uh, our population has uh, in, in its engineering capacity, uh, in terms of the reserves, uh, and in terms of the strategy, certainly think that we're very well placed for you know, the next 20, 30 years. Having said that, things can always improve, but you know we can continue to be optimistic about the future while working on making sure uh, those things improve. Interesting. And as far as timelines, I mean, sometimes we see, they, you know, politicians want to have, they have certain really ambitious timelines as far as rerouting certain supply chains by, you know, 2026 or 2027 or maybe 2030, depending on the thing that they're trying to reroute. How do you feel about the, you know, it's a question I asked, uh, we had a guest on Graphite last week, and he felt optimistic, but he said it like everybody has to be working in concert here. We can't really afford to have any friction if we hope to meet the ambitious goals that many political figures are outlining here in North America. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that statement. I think, you know, as I mentioned, it takes about seven to 10 years for a mine to come online. And that has to be reduced. Some portion of that is to do with, you know, permitting. Some portion of that has to do with actually how long it takes to make build something. But wherever we can accelerate those timelines will be will be important. I think one of the things I said earlier was that for the rest of the decade, we expect lithium prices to be above $30,000 a ton. And this that's partially because we don't expect new mines to be meaningfully be producing in the next six to seven years. But that market is at the beginning right now of, a, you know, I, I'd say this is a once in a generation transformation of an industrial sector. You're kind of at the beginning of this. And so it will take a few years for things to catch up and actually start to show results. But we have to keep the eyes on the long-term view, and we have to set ambitious goals. They should be, um, we like to say at Mangrove, they should be comfortably uncomfortable. 
that they're not so big that we, we, we're going to be, you know, demoralized because we didn't achieve them, but they should really be stretching us to our limits. Interesting. I love that. Comfortably uncomfortable. I may borrow that. I kind of like that. Or uncomfortably comfortable. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. So yeah. you uh, can, I, sometimes I forget which way around it is. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So and just to kind of zero in on this a little bit. Uh, so in your estimation, then, is this more of a, in a sense, like if you had unlimited supplies of lithium, do you feel like we have the scalability to process all that and that our problems would be solved? Or is it more than just a supply issue? Do we also have like a processing issue of not being able to process that lithium in a way that will give us enough, you know, processed, refined lithium? It's both a supply issue and a refining and processing issue. So I think the the finer point on this is just because you have lithium doesn't mean you can use it. So lithium does exist in a lot of places. But producing lithium at a quality and that can actually end up in a battery and producing it at a cost that is reasonable is difficult. So you would have kind of heard last year Elon Musk say this, that lithium is very common. Uh, and that's true. But producing high quality lithium that can actually be used in a battery is not so simple. And that that is also a bottleneck. And that's where mangrove is focusing on. Uh, we think the, our electrochemical process can fundamentally solve some issues there, um, as well as reduce costs of production and and reduce environmental uh, issues there. But it, it's, a, it's an industry-wide issue. Uh, so processing, refining, and then on the back end, recycling is going to be important as well. Of course, we, we work with battery recyclers as well. So we work across the supply chain uh, in trying to enable more uh, pathways for uh, lithium refining operations. But it's quite, yeah, it's quite an exciting time for us to, to be looking at this sector. Okay, excellent. So just to wrap up then, just to go back to what you're doing over at Mangrove Lithium, it seems like this is a bit of a game changer to use a cliche. I mean, what <laughs> what is it that you guys kind of hope to offer and, and how is that kind of processing different from traditional processing? What are you doing different? Sure. So the traditional processing and refining relies heavily on uh, the use of chemicals. So um, these chemicals come from different places. Sometimes they're generated by chemical plants. Other times they're mined themselves. So uh, a huge portion of lithium production uses soda, soda ash or sodium carbonate. Sodium carbonate is a naturally occurring form, mineralized form of sodium and carbon dioxide. And so when you process it, you, you know, kind of release that carbon dioxide um, back into the atmosphere once it gets gets used. So we we don't use those chemicals. So what we do is we use electricity uh, to do the same thing that the chemicals would have done. And so our technology focuses on replacing the chemicals, eliminating them from the, from the supply chain and using electricity to do the same thing. What this allows us to do is one, it completely eliminates the supply chain of, of those chemicals. So it reduces the emissions that come from that, from the production of those chemicals, from the trucking of those chemicals. It reduces, you know, that the, the issues of the carbon dioxide that might have been, ended up in the atmosphere during the, the battery manufacturing process. But it also eliminates the waste that the chemicals generate when they're used in mining operations. And this also helps us improve the purity of the lithium because if you think about it, you add a chemical into your lithium source, it's mixing with the molecules. And so eventually some of that will be left behind. Because we don't use them in the first place, the purity of the lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate that we can make is significantly higher. 
what we're doing is eliminating several steps in the process, as well as uh, eliminating certain impurities from the entire process, which ultimately means a better product at a lower cost and with lower carbon emissions. And so now we are working towards building our first uh, commercial plant uh, that will be in the United States. We are probably 18 months away from a startup. And so that's kind of where we are on our on our timeline. Well, that sounds very impressive. Actually, a pretty fast timeline. I mean, it doesn't hurt when policymakers are cheering you on. So as we wrap up here, just some final thoughts. What do you want people to know that they might not know, you know, in this audience about what you're doing, what's going on in lithium and, you know, the processing of lithium? What do you want people to know? <laughs> sure. If I think, you know, if I can have people take away uh, one thing, I'll say I'll, I'll say that I think that we need to recognize that lithium comes from many different sources. It comes from very different feedstocks, but not all lithium is equal. Uh, and that the refining and processing element is quite an important part of the supply chain. And having that refining processing element in North America and Europe is going to be a big driver towards lithium that is being produced in a sustainable and and in a way that that adheres to principles of fairness uh, in, in some some ways. Saad Dara, CEO and co-founder of Mangrove Lithium, thank you for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Very interesting to contrast, isn't it? Dr. Saad Dara with John DeMaio and his focus on graphite last week. I mean, it's a similar tale, isn't it? We are going to have to be working in complete concert in order to achieve this rerouting of supply chains. As Saad has said, China has a 10-year lead on us, so we don't really have time for a lot of friction here. So everything's got to work out well, just as John DeMaio was saying. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.